0: One of the reasons we call this podcast Pitchfork Economics is that Nick and I see pitchforks coming if we don't fix the radical inequality that is tearing our country apart. And one of the things that is creating this radical inequality is the educational inequality that is a big part of our economic picture. On this topic, I recently read After the Ivory Tower Falls by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Will Bunch. It's about the epic untold story of college in America, the great political and cultural fault line of American life. As I've said before, one of the best things about doing this podcast is we get to speak to the authors of the books we read. So let's talk to Will. So I'm Will
1: Bunch. I'm the national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, where uh, I've worked for a long time at the Inquirer and the Daily News. In late 2022, I published my latest book. It's called After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It.
0: So I guess the place to start, Will, is why? why did you want to cover uh call it higher education
1: yeah you know it was it was a little bit of a change for me because um you know my main focus i've been a journalist for over 40 years and, and my main focus has been pol- you know hardcore politics um going back to the first presidential election i covered which was uh 1984 when ronald reagan ran for re-election so um Uh, So I've been much more of a political writer than an education writer, but one thing that's really marked my work really since the uh, early 2000s, which was also about around the time I became an opinion writer, is, you know, I I, I kind of embarked on a lifelong effort to understand the right, the conservative movement in this country, and where they were really coming from. You know, it it kind of started back in those days, being, being a dad, I just... Seemed to spend a ridiculous amount of time in my car, including in the afternoons because I was working this like split shift. So every day I started listening to to Rush Limbaugh, not because I liked Rush Limbaugh. In fact, <laughs> uh, you know, I was kind of repulsed by what he stood for. But it was like a really good way for me to to try and understand the mind of the political right in America. One one thing that struck me from from day one, at, you know, and that that I Really wanted to get my arms around was the fact that it seemed like the biggest driver of resentment on the right was towards people with education. This was the heyday of when big corporations were, you know, destroying the the Rust Belt or what we might call Trump Country in terms of moving jobs to Mexico or moving jobs to China. And I just I could never understand why Republicans weren't mad at the CEOs who were killing these jobs or weren't particularly mad at Wall Street. You know, they gave lip service to that occasionally, but not really. But they really despised people like journalists. I, I caught on to that pretty quickly. And they despised college professors and Hollywood movie stars and, and people who weren't, didn't seem to me anyway, to be controlling their day-to-day lives. But there seemed to be this resentment of a certain type of elites you know the also the you know the professional managerial class people on that level you know so so i've been, i've been watching really for 20 years how that passion against that particular type of elite seemed to be such a such a driver of the conservative movement the people the people who were calling talk radio the people who were watching fox news when that became popular you know over over the next 10 years i saw this idea really become more and more a part of American politics and i mean you saw it in the numbers you know you would look at the results of each election and every election more and more the republicans were becoming the party of people without college degrees especially, especially particularly white people without college degrees and more and more the democrats were becoming the party of people you know with college diplomas which was kind of interesting when you think about it because in in these two tribes forming people kind of um, would go against their self-interest in certain ways, right? So, you you know, you you had people people making over $200,000 supporting the Democrats, even though the Democrats said they would tax people making more than $200,000. You know, you had people in places like West Virginia or Ohio who were, you know, desperate for better health care and better social services, but yet they were running for the party that was pledging to repeal obamacare so i really wanted to understand what was driving what people were starting to call the college non-college divide and it seemed to me that if if you have a college non-college divide then the thing that's driving that is college so what is it what is it (laughs) right
0: so what that's that's almost too obvious but of course it,
1: it is it is but you know i was somebody who spent a lot of time reading political journalism, you know, in, mm-hmm. in newspapers and in magazines and online and what people were saying in Twitter. And, you know, certainly, you know, spiking with Donald Trump's election in 2016, I would see more and more pieces in the political press saying, you know, the real divide in American politics today is, is, is education, you know, whether you have a college degree or not. But no, but nobody would ever take it to the next level. Nobody, Nobody said, "Well, why is that?" You know, because because it's not something that follows logically. You know, we were trained. You know, I, I I you know went to college in the late '70s, early '80s, and I studied political science, and and we were trained to think that class and economics, you know, were the were the drivers of the two parties. You know, I I was there for Bill Clinton's election in 1992 when his when his mantra was "It's the economy, stupid," and and that's that's how we were trained to think, but but now people were voting against their economic interests in some cases to to be a part of this social tribe, the educated, the degree holders, versus the non-degree holders. So I, I decided to take a deep dive, and you know I I, I spent a couple of years on this, and I learned quite a bit. You know I, re- I really focused on the modern history of college because there's a neat dividing line, which was 1944. And the passage of the GI Bill, because you can look before 1944, and college was just not a big, or was not, I mean, it was uh, it was important, but it wasn't a huge part of American life. Right. Uh, you know, only five percent of adults had college diplomas. You know, going into World War II, and coming out of World War II, you know, you had the GI Bill, which which really showed that if you if government got involved, if you made higher education a public good. The middle class and and people from the working class and people who grew up on farms, you know, could really benefit. Could really move up to the next level. Can you know, move up to uh, a life where instead of you know making things in a factory, you're working with their hands that they they were now working with their brains, you know. And and it was a big economic engine. And you had this golden age of college from the mid 1940s through through the late 60s, early 70s when you know the american economy w- was booming of course not for everybody you know not for not for people of color women were still obviously held back in the job market but but you know you did have this generally more more positive more boisterous economy at the same time you had this real public investment in in college both financially and just also just public support for the idea of college that this that this was the american dream
0: yeah, I mean, let's get into this a, a little more because this is an economics podcast, <laughs> and this, of course. this, this notion of higher education being a public good—that really was at the core of uh, the GI Bill and the uh, legislation and support that followed, wasn't it? That this was, this wasn't something that you did. Uh, to just improve these individuals, this was going to make our economy and our democracy stronger. And it was, and this was very much within the context of fighting the Cold War, wasn't it? You just said a lot there, because all because all you said a lot, and almost
1: all the things you said are, are true, right? You know, it was, all of a sudden, college was seen as just this kind of thing that, you know, rich, wealthy families passed on from generation to generation, all of a sudden this kind of light bulb went off at the end of World War II. And people realized that this could be this gigantic economic engine, you know, that I mean I mean you could see as early as the early 1960s with Clark Kerr, the famous, you know, president of the University of California system, uh, people talking about what we now call the knowledge economy. There was this new sense that, you know, knowledge, rather than You know, iron and steel and automobiles could be, could be America's economic advantage. But you had these other things going on too that were also pro college. And and you mentioned both of them. One of them is, you know, we had just come off, you know, one of the most traumatic 20 or 30 year stretches in in American and world history, where you had first the Great Depression and then World War II, you know, which was the second world war of the first half of the 20th century. And, And you had seen, these new political movements like fascism like uh you know totalitarian forms of communism that uh understandably alarmed people and it started a real conversation about the value of higher education as something that can promote democracy that that by promoting critical thinking you can get more people to participate in civic life and be better citizens and and the third leg of that which you also alluded to is the Cold War and the fact that, you know, that that light bulb that I mentioned that went off after World War Two, you know, at the Pentagon, there was this sudden realization that, you know, people with more education made for better soldiers, which I mean, it's, it's crazy now because you think of that it now, it's like, of course. But, you know, back, back then when most people were not getting higher education, it wasn't seen that, you know, it wasn't necessarily seen that way. People didn't make that connection connection that a better trained army and Navy, you know, with lots of college graduates would be a better fighting force than, than what we had had before. And, you know, the Pentagon was also very interested in in the research capacity of these universities, mm-hmm. you know, that, that by having more vibrant universities, you know, suddenly you had this place for making the kind of advances that they'd seen in World War II, you know, like, unfortunately, nuclear weapons, but, you know, other, other things like radar and penicillin and other things that were developed during the war. So, you know, you you really had this perfect storm where in every way people saw the benefits. You know, the average middle-class citizen was excited about, you know, their children going to college for the first time. And, you know, the GI Bill, like you said, was this experiment in college as a public good. Um, The benefit was incredible. I mean, not only did People get free tuition, and not not just for state universities. I mean, if you went if you got into Harvard, they would pay pay for you to go to Harvard, and uh, and your room and board, and a stipend to live on. You know, I mean, something like that is just a dream for most of today's college students. But um, you know, they, they were willing to do that for veterans. You know, and people who weren't veterans, well, you didn't get the same deal. But at most public universities, tuition was just ridiculously low, you know, a couple hundred dollars, you know, it, it really was clicking on all four cylinders for, for that generation.
0: And the benefits, the public benefits it produced were were immense. Uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I remember from your book, you, you say that the GI Bill produced, it was tens of thousands of engineers and like 200,000 school teachers. Yeah, the, the, the numbers are huge. I mean, both just like you said, just
1: in the large body of teachers and, and you know, I mean, you had, this, you had this virtuous cycle, right? Because the more colleges expanded, the more they needed professors. And so you had these universities churning out professors, you know, in, in, in the liberal arts and the social sciences, you know, in the, in the humanities. You can major in English and there would be a job for you as an English professor, right? Which is, isn't really the case today. So so you had all of those things going on at the same time.
0: Right. So that's the happy part of the story. This is the, the two to three decade period in which the great American middle class was built. We lifted uh, tens of millions of people out of poverty and into the middle class. Uh, income and wealth inequality dramatically decreased. We had, yeah, we, there, there were still a lot of problems. It was largely for white people. Um, and so yeah. you, but it, you did end up laying this, it did end up, as you say in your book, laying the, the seeds for uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, but when did this notion of higher education being a public good uh, start to end? Why and what were the consequences?
1: This isn't the only consequence because obviously, as we all know, the U.S. economy started going bad around the 1970s, and right. you know, that, that caused that caused retrenchment in a number of ways. But the real change in public attitudes about college is political. And what I argue, and after the Ivy Tower falls, is that this idea that higher education was going to get America's young people excited about democracy and Make them critical thinkers and and start thinking about the world and thinking more globally. That really worked, <laughs> and then you had the blowback, and the blowback was, well, wait a minute, like America is not doing this democracy thing, right? You know, it, you know, it really started, like you said, with the civil rights movement, and, uh, you know, which was which was led by the growing started by the or started I should say by the growing number of African Americans who were going, starting to go to college in the 50s and early 60s. You know, you had. The lunch counter sit-ins that started in Greensboro in early 1960s, and you know, and, and when you talk to people, survivors of that era, you know that that was the trigger. Even on majority white campuses, young people were just electrified by these sit-ins and and the role that young people were playing in bringing about social change. And and, and you know, for a few years, you saw lots of college kids participating in things like Mississippi Freedom Freedom Summer and and other events like that. And that ended up flowing directly into things like the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, which I devote a long segment in the book to because really the first major campus-based protest where people were protesting to, to change the university, to, to get more free speech for young people on campus. and the, And the Berkeley Free Speech Movement really flowed directly into opposition to the Vietnam War and you know i i assume that most people listening to this are probably somewhat familiar with you know the history of the late 60s and campus protests and maybe have some general knowledge at least of what happened at campuses like berkeley and columbia and and, and the young people who who protested the war at the um, 1968 democratic convention in in chicago and um you know and and it got more and more radical as the decade went on and uh You know, it culminated in these incidents that are famous now, like the Kent State Massacre in which four students were killed. This caused a a huge political and and social backlash, uh, you know, among older people, among conservatives, among people who weren't still benefiting from, you know, because it wasn't like everybody was going to college. In fact, today. The number of adults who get college degrees is 37%. So we, we went from five to 37%. And obviously, more than more than that have some college, you know, community college or a couple years, and then they dropped out. But um, among people without degrees, there was resentment against these kids who were protesting Vietnam or protesting, you know, protesting white privilege um, in society and things like that. You saw the rise of these politicians on the right. And, and Ronald Reagan is really the avatar of this. You mm-hmm. know? He ran for governor of California in nineteen sixty six, having only been, you know, a, a movie actor and something of a spokesman before that. And he had a couple of big issues, but the biggest one was he was gonna clean up Berkeley, you know, he was gonna do something about this campus unrest and and these hippies with their dances and their sexual liberation and, and all of that. And, you know, and, and he beaten an incumbent, Pat Brown in a landslide he won by a million votes and you know two years later in 68 you know richard nixon ran on this law and order platform you know again promising to to clean up unrest and uh, you know with with an emphasis on what was going on on the college campuses and in conjunction with that with that political shift came this idea that well we're sending these kids to college practically for free so of course they're going to revolt against the system you know you know what if we changed the system? What if we essentially privatized it so that people attending college had financial skin in the game? you know that, that they' right. they're getting a benefit from this. they're getting they're getting the economic benefit of a career and a job where they're going to make more money over time. So why you know why are we giving them free or nearly free tuition uh, to do this, especially when it seems to end up in them becoming revolutionaries?
0: Yeah, this was part of the neoliberal shift that started to take hold at the time where education was under neoliberalism isn't a public good, it's a private good. Since you benefit from it, it increases your human capital, uh, then you should pay for it. Not the public. It's not, not the taxpayers who should pay for this since they don't benefit from you getting an education, you do. Or at least that's the economic justification that a lot of politicians fall back on.
1: You can see the roots of division, right? You know mm-hmm. that that all of a sudden now, all of a sudden now it's us versus them, and the trend has been going on now for forty years, and, and and it kind of happened in in this kind of frog in boiling water sort of way, you know that it happened gradually. You know there wasn't a lot of attention paid to the fact that we were going to take college from being in almost public good, not we weren't quite there, obviously, but uh, you know, we were going to take college from being affordable and we were gonna privatize it and make it more expensive. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like the president of the United States in the Oval Office gave a speech one night and said, we're gonna privatize college. It just it's just something that happened gradually and steadily over over the years until it got to the point where, you know, the government had to, you know, Congress and the government had to expand loan programs because people were finding more and more that tuition was reaching the point where they had to had to borrow money more frequently to be able to pay for it and you know again it's like well it's okay because they're going to get better jobs with this degree that they borrowed money to to obtain and so it's still going to be a good deal for them in the long run and before people before america knew what hit us you know we had We had this student debt crisis, you know, and and again, you know, people weren't even really talking about the student debt problem until, I I would argue, until 2011, when you had when you had the Occupy Wall Street protests and the Occupy protests in other cities like, you know, Philly and Seattle, then it became an issue. Then people started saying, hey, did you know that I have, uh, you know, $80,000 in college debt? And, uh, you know, because of this great recession, I can only get a job as a barista at Starbucks, you know, and But by
0: then it was too late (laughs) because by then
1: by then it was a crisis. Right.
0: I think back to where I'm a few years younger than you. So I graduated college in 85. And I think Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that struck me in reading your book, by the way, is how much of it was familiar to me. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned Trinity College in the book. I think you said you had an uncle who went there. No, you know, no my you, no, my my dad
1: actually. Was yeah. your father
0: your yeah. your you spent a whole chapter on Kenyon College. Those were two of the colleges I applied to. <laughs> um, uh, I ended up getting into Penn, so I went there. I believe you went to Brown, is that right?
1: Yeah, so we had we had similar experiences and it's interesting because you know the college experience is 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 such a diverse experience, right? Because I mean, the schools that you just mentioned are um, are all 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 private, you know, elite institutions, and and they're important, uh, you know, for several reasons. I mean, you know, the Ivy League schools in particular somehow kind of set the trends that just filter down through the whole system. You know, that the, the basic economic model of college today, which is known as the high tuition, high aid model. Was was created by Harvard in the late 1970s, and of course they could get away with it because you had incredibly rich families willing to pay that high tuition to go to Harvard, which gave them the money then to offer you know fairly generous financial aid packages to to low income students. When that system filtered down to public state universities, it didn't work as well, and uh, you know. And then we've seen the states that are responsible for these state universities responsible for funding them, just gradually pull support over a long period of time.
0: Yeah. In Washington state, we we, we managed to implement half of it, the high tuition part of the model. <laughs> we, we, right. we just didn't get to the high financial aid. And as a result, what you saw over uh, three decades was Washington shifting from 80% state funding and 20% tuition to tuition and 20% state funding. And it's interesting, you talk in the book about all the fancy facilities that these schools have added, and that's true. But when I, uh, I remember, it must've been about six, seven years ago, I actually looked at the cost per student, what they were spending per student in inflation-adjusted dollars, and it hadn't gone up that much. The tuition, the price had gone up dramatically. It had quadrupled. Um, in real dollars, but the uh, over about a about 15 years but the cost what they were spending per student had an increase it was just a shift in how we funded it and when we say tuition, we largely mean loans
1: yeah for for most for most families absolutely
0: and yeah, I mean that
1: change is largely the result of, of your state legislature pulling its financial support you know and think about it we're talking that we're talking about a blue state, you know, liberal quote unquote Washington mm-hmm. state, you know, and Pennsylvania. The numbers that that I've seen are almost exactly identical. You know, they I think the numbers I saw where they went from seventy five percent to twenty five percent public support, taxpayer support of public universities. And you're right, you know, that money was just had to be made up by raising tuition, and and the kids didn't get a huge benefit from. From the higher tuition. It was just it was just to make up for the lack of public support. One of the problems of, in the public debate over, or in the political debate over college, is that I don't know if people even understand the terms very well, because, you know, we, we talk about how higher education has been privatized in America. And I, I kind of went into this not fully understanding that concept, because to me, you know, I, I guess, you know as as a younger journalist I, I covered you know city and town governments and and so when you said privatizing it meant that you know you fired all the sanitation workers and you hired a private company to pick up the trash or something that that's not that's not really what we mean when we say that higher education was privatized what 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 we mean is quite simply that we went from it being a shared burden that all taxpayers paid something to support to being a burden that was totally placed on the individuals who attend college, and it, it's crazy, right? Because we, we, you know, we we don't do that, and we would never do that for K through 12 education. You know, we totally have accepted and internalized the idea that K through 12 is is, is the responsibility of of the whole community. And if you don't have kids, or if your kids grew up 30 years ago, it doesn't matter. You're still paying property taxes or whatever whatever right. your school district uses to, to fund its schools everybody 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 pays for k-12 and and now now here it is it's 2023 and we're living in a society where everybody acknowledges that some education beyond k-12 is necessary uh you know not everybody has to get a bachelor's degree it's it's true but people need some sort of training beyond the age of 18 whether it's trade school or apprenticeships or, or or something and yet we just cut we just cut our children off at 18 you know you know 18 comes and people are on their own which is you know it's created this dog eat dog system you know and and i didn't even get into this in the book probably as much as i should because it's something we're talking about more in the in the couple years since uh, I submitted it to the publisher, but, you know, you've got this mental health crisis among young people. And I think a lot of it is the pressure that this system puts on, you know, that that we basically tell our kids, you know, you need to get it right by the time you're age 18, because that's going to decide your whole life, you know. Whether you Mm -hmm. get into the right college or whether you get into college or whether you go to college, you know, if if you don't get into college, you're going to be seen as a failure and society is going to look look down on you. And, you know, I I mean, it's crazy the pressure we put on our kids, you know, and I I was going to say one thing I do talk about in the book uh, affecting the millions of young people who don't go to college at all is these recent findings about the increase in so-called deaths of despair. You know, Mm -hmm. people... People who turn to opioids, people, you know, the, the sharp increase in the suicide rates, uh, especially among working class men, um, you know, and um, these Princeton sociologists who invented the phrase deaths of despair, you know, they were originally tracking this and kind of, you know, mi- middle aged men, men in their 40s and 50s. And in, in their latest update a couple years ago, they said, you know, now we're seeing these deaths of despair in, in younger people, but that, But the main determinant of this is whether they went to college or not. And to me, that's just a giant red flag that people should look at that and say, "Whoa, what are we doing here? If we've created this system where half the people aren't going to college and yet not going to college is making them so despondent about their lives, that you're seeing more suicide or more drug overdoses,
0: we should be having a conversation
1: about how to fix
0: that okay so let's have that conversation how do we fix it what i what i tried to do in the book
1: you know i i made it clear i like like i said at the start of this interview you know i i, I came at this as a as a political journalist wanting to learn how college and higher education was affecting politics and affecting society more broadly and i'm not uh i, I don't have an education degree i'm not an ed tech person or ed reformer. so 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 in the book what I tried to do uh, in talking about how to fix the problem I talked about it very broadly because I think I think our basic framework for how we look at the role of education is so out of whack that we need to start by adopting the right framework and 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 again I think it it starts with the very basic idea of understanding this notion of of public good versus versus privatization and I believe strongly that we should get behind the idea that higher education should be a public good. Obviously it's expensive, but, you know, in, in a country that spends so much money and spends so much money on things like prisons and the Pentagon and different priorities, we we can find ways to, to, to do several things. We can find ways to make public universities free or at least nearly free, but we should also do the same for trade school. There's a There's a huge demand mm-hmm. for people, to, to learn trades. Um, you know, there, there's a huge demand for people to get a, apprenticeships or certificates that are built around job skills. And, and you know, we, we should be looking about how to make those a, a public good as well. So um, uh, we should do that. I, I think we also are on the right track with what President Biden is doing with college loan forgiveness, because, you know,
0: we basically- We're at least should- attempting to do. Yeah, I mean it's what. Yeah,
1: it's attempting yeah. to do it. it. It's only partial. It doesn't. It doesn't solve the whole problem. But um, you know, we we cheated a couple generations. You know, my my my, my generation. You know, I, I'm, I'm I'm a boomer. I guess you're you're on the bubble between the baby boom and Gen X. But you know, we 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 benefited from a system when co- when college was more reasonable and more affordable and and taxpayers picked up more of the cost for our generation to attend college. And, you know, and, and then we cheated the generations that came after us and or society cheated the generations that came after us. And I think I think we owe it to them to admit that we made a mistake. And you know, it would just be a huge Boon for people suffering under this weight, you know, and an economic boon, a, a a mental health boon, you know. So, so I, I think we should pursue this aggressively as we can. I think we should also support the idea of, of quote liberal education unquote, which doesn't mean liberal in the political sense necessarily, but liberal education, or yeah, <laughs> which although that that holds it back, right? People thinking people associating it with with uh you know those crazy pinkos on campus but but uh no but Uh but you know that by liberal education we're talking about more focus on the humanities more focus on uh social sciences you know um I mean it's it's fascinating when you go back to that golden age I talked about in the 50s and 60s and you look at how many people majored in subjects like English like philosophy like sociology um uh you know Uh, I was a
0: history major
1: History is classic,
0: classic, and it, it's all dying, you know. And I'll tell you, I don't. I know at least the <laughs> the privileged elite Ivy League education I got as a as a history major. It it didn't teach me anything that was particularly useful in the real world, other than it taught me how to learn, which is something, especially in this modern economy. We constantly have to do because it's changing so fast that's that's i mean, forget about all the things about making you a better citizen, uh giving you a richer outlook on life in terms of all the reading all everything the humanities does. just it gives you this skill set that makes you a lot more flexible and resilient in a fast changing economy,
1: yeah, and you know you know what's crazy is employers actually want that, you know, employers want people who can think on their feet, and who can adapt when the new technology inevitably comes out in five years, or, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I mean, they don't want people who are trained to code one computer system, and then, you know, chat GPT, or something comes along, and all of a sudden, their skills are outdated. And, uh, you know, that's fine, but they want people who have the ability to learn to learn new skills. And, you know when when you look when you look at what's going on more broadly in american society when you look at the problems of misinformation and how many adults are, are falling into rabbit holes like QAnon and things like that and how many how many people were willing to believe donald trump's big lie and participate in in january 6th and, and and when you look at the high rate of climate change denial in this country i mean all of all of that just screams out for liberal higher education you know um uh uh it wouldn't solve those problems necessarily but it would help quite a bit i think and it, it just it just makes a case for the kind of education that we were talking about in the 40s and 50s and that you know we've gotten away from in this focus on careerism so i talk about those three things i i also uh i also actually devote the last chapter of my book to, to kind of a related idea which is that that we should push for a, a kind of universal national service. No, notice I didn't use the term mandatory national service because even the people, mm-hmm. even the even today, even the most enthusiastic supporters of it, you know, and, and we're talking about things like variations of Teach for America or this, you know, the Civilian Conservation Corps, core which which Biden does have a modern update that he's pushing called the Civilian Climate Corps, right, where people work on you know, outdoors, climate-related pr- projects, uh, uh, that sort of thing. And I, and I and I think people should do it at 18, which is the critical age. I mean, to me, 18 is the age we're losing people. So why not promote a gap year for everybody? You know, it, I mean, it would help people focus on what they're going to do with the rest of their lives and give people a break, you know, instead of this from Peter pressure to, to get into Penn or Brown or whatever. But, you know, but, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, or you know, for people who aren't college bound, it would give them a chance to do something different before they entered the workforce.
0: I can tell you the 18 year old me would have hated that idea.
1: Yeah, well, you try and make it, you try and make it exciting enough that, yeah. that a majority of kids are going to want to do it, you know, and, and uh, it, it's it's complicated, I realize. I, realized, I know. As somebody who regularly talks about politics or, or economic issues that have a political bent to them you know you know right now so much of what we talk about is how divided america is and how how we can't get along Mm -hmm. and you know are we on the brink of a civil war but it's funny because we never talk about well is there something we can do about that you know and i mean the thing the thing about civilian service is you're taking kids from cities and taking kids from the rust belt and taking kids from the south and you know, taking kids from Philadelphia, and you know, and 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 hopefully bringing them together to use Donald Trump's favorite project, sweep the forests, you know, or or what or whatever, you know, to to to, to uh, you know, build storm drains or, or or help out struggling schools in you know West Virginia or something. But you know, th- things that are in the public good, you're you're bringing people together. You know, we used to have something like that in America. What it was, unfortunately, was war, right? when right. you had world war ii or korea people from all over the country you know like my uh, you know my my, uh, my italian american father-in-law you know ended up down down in alabama stationed you know before before he was sent off to germany you know and uh, um you meet other people you know you, you get out but war is not something that we ought to be promoting but but to do the same thing for civilian projects like climate change that are actually needed I, I think would be fantastic and it's it's a solution, you know I mean it, it just kind of drives me crazy that we devote so much mental energy to talking about these problems and we devote such little mental energy to proposing, well what if we tried this and you know, maybe maybe it won't work exactly the way you hoped it would work. but we're not trying to fix this problem. We're just watching this anger and bitterness from this college non-college divide in this country. You know, get worse and worse, and and um, you know, we did solve a similar crisis in this country once, but by by having a civil war. But do we really, do we really want to do it that way again? I I, I don't think that
0: we do. Well, some people do. Yeah, <laughs> some. But there's yeah, always There's always, right. are... always going to be some people. Yeah, some people are reaching for it. Well, one final question we ask all of our guests: Why do you do this work? Well, journalism or or broadly or yeah everything you do i've been following your work for years including this book why why do you do it journalism
1: is a good fit for me because i I love the creativity and the art of writing and i've I've always did that you know when i was when i was eight or nine years old you know i imagined myself maybe becoming a novel a novelist or a writing fiction but then as i grew older i became more interested in the real world and what was happening in the world starting starting, I think, with the late 60s, and then, you know, for better or worse, I I really came of age in the Watergate era, and and that kind of did two things, you know, it just created this general excitement about journalists, And, and it kind of cemented this idea that, well, you know, the stuff that we saw in the 60s the campus protest and being more revolutionary that that didn't change the world but you know journalism is something that can change the world look at Woodward and Bernstein and right. these other folks covering Watergate and 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 I really bought into that and it wasn't quite like that right you know and and so 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 I so I so I had so I had kind of a rebirth in the early 2000s you know after in the in the years between 9 11 and probably the start of the iraq war in 2003 and i guess into 2004 uh where where i really kind of questioned everything you know that you know i I still thought that journalism and writing was a force for good but um i I felt it it wasn't changing the world in a positive way like i hoped it would and so so i became very interested in new ways of doing things you know it, it just so happened that that was Kind of the blogging, the era of the blogging mm-hmm. revolution, and so I became a blogger. Even, even though I worked for, a, even though I worked for a newspaper, the Philadelphia Daily News, but uh, I, I had a very kind of liberal, experimental, you know, liberal in terms of open to like new ideas and new things, and and they were willing to let me try being a blogger, even though even as a main, even as a mainstream journalist. So it was kind of a weird hybrid, but but it worked for me, and it's it's evolved over the years in, into my column and, and uh, you know, it's helped give, give me a platform to, to, to write three books now about politics. And I love it. I wouldn't do anything else. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.